So we finished chapter 48 last time, and we'll get into 49, and then I want to take a digression. Let's back up to 4820, which is the end of the chapter. Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. As you remember last time, we destroyed Babylon and correlated that with Revelation. Then we had a basic description to Judah of why they were in exile. And the point I want to make is this is written a century and a quarter before they go into exile. So he's talking in 4820, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. And they aren't in Babylon at that point. They're still 140 years away from the return. One of the things that happens in Revelation that we talked about is the passage where it says, come out of her, my people. And one of the things that lots and lots of Bible believers take from that, uh, not without some justification, is the idea that you're not supposed to be involved with the world. I don't take it that way because we're in the world, we're supposed to engage with the world, we're supposed to do things with the world, we're supposed to prevail in the world. And not being involved in the world is a prescription for being ineffective. Joseph and Daniel are both examples of that. Not that they were in the world by choice. I take that passage in Revelation to be situational. In other words, there is going to come a time when we are expected to get out of wherever Babylon happens to be at that time. We talked about it last time that the spiritual Babylon seems to move with centers of power. So one of the things that looks very much like Rome at the time of the writing of Revelation, no longer Rome, something else now. So the idea is to be aware and come out. I don't think it's a prohibition in general to come out of the world per se. So now let's come back to Isaiah, and I'm going to start in 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. One of the commentaries I've been reading, and this one happens to be the Dallas Theological Seminary, they say that this is clearly talking about the Messiah. If you talk to somebody like Tobias Singer or an uh, anti-Messianic Jew, they will say, this is clearly talking about Israel. And the point of making is, it says so in verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And they said, I mean, how clear can you be? That's Israel. What Dallas Theological Seminary says is no, it can't be Israel. 
it has to be the Messiah because one of the things that is going to happen is whoever this is is going to bring Israel back. And that's a Messiah thing. So it can't be talking about Israel, it must be talking about Messiah. Let me read along a little bit more and then I'll come back and we'll talk about this some more. So I'm all the way down to verse 5. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So what this says is whoever this servant is, his job is to bring back Jacob. And of course, that's the basis of the assertion by the Christian commentary that this can't be national Israel. And what they go on to say is that the Messiah is going to do the thing that Israel was designed to do. Remember when God, back in the Torah, took them for himself and says, I want you to be a nation of priests. And the idea was that they would be priests to all the nations of the world. And by the way, I'm not saying the Christian argument's wrong. That's not the point I'm making. I'm simply laying out how the argument goes. So the Christian argument is Israel was designed to be a light to the nations, a royal priesthood, holy nation, etc. And because they fell into apostasy and got sent into exile and so forth, they were not being effective in accomplishing that mission. Therefore, the Lord raises up a Messiah, calls him by the name Israel, because he is going to do what Israel was supposed to do. And in this passage of scripture, oh, by the way, he is going to bring the remnant of Jacob back to their land. Now, as I say, if you were to talk to an anti-missionary rabbi, somebody like Tobias Singer, I mean, he was a bright guy, I don't agree with him, but he's a bright guy, he would say, no, 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 this is clearly talking about Israel, it says so. Now, what I want to do here is pick up on something Kay said last time, with respect to chapter 48. One of the things that I have said many times is prophecy is designed so that it speaks eternal truth, but from a perspective that the people who hear it at the time will not understand. And of course, the poster child for that is Yeshua when he does the parable of the soul. And his disciples come to him afterwards and say, what? We don't understand what you just said. And he explains it to them and he says to them, it's given to you to understand, but not them because their eyes and ears have been made dull because they're going into exile. When you get to passages of scripture that are like this one, regardless of who it refers to, most of this is yet future to us. In other words, all of Israel has not been regathered. So this promise of regathering and so forth is yet future to us. It's started. Certainly the exile from Babylon was ended, even though most of Israel did not return. 
But the reason they didn't return was not because they were continued to be held prisoner, but because they had made a good life in Babylon and didn't want to uproot, and they were quite happy where they were. Thank you. As we go through this passage here tonight, what's going to happen is God is going to bring them back from the entire world. So for us, that is yet future. So the fact that there's controversy about passages of scripture like that, I think is perfectly in keeping with the nature of prophecy. Now, I'm gonna switch now to Psalm two. Some of you have been through this, for some of you, this will be the first time. Psalm two is a conversation in three voices. I wanna go through that briefly with you and point out the three voices to get you used to the idea that in poetic Hebrew, you very often will switch voices and you look at it and if you're trying to parse the sentences as an English speaker, it will sometimes be confusing. So the reason I'm going over to Psalm 2 is it's sort of my poster child for that kind of a poetic writing. So, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the rulers of the earth are conspiring to rebel against Yehovah and Yehovah's anointed, who is not the same thing. Verse 3 again. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the kings speaking. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, Adonai, holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, Voice is now going to switch. So this is now God the Father speaking. As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the voice there is Yehovah, or God, or Elohim, speaking. And he is speaking to the kings of the earth, saying, I'm going to set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He is not saying, I am going to set myself on Zion. saying, I'm going to set my king. End quote. This is the son speaking now. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. End quote. That's all the son quoting the father. So what the son has done here is he is quoting what the father's charge to him is. Verse 10, now we have a change of voice again. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. So the narrator here, who I'm asserting is the spirit, is giving advice to the kings, and he is saying, serve the Lord, Adonai, with fear, and rejoice with trembling, and kiss the son. So it is neither the Lord nor the son speaking here, it is 
the first voice that started off the song. And then finally it ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I'm going to assume him here is the son, but that isn't clear. Okay, everybody see how that works? That psalm has three different voices. You have a narrator, who I'm asserting is the spirit. You have the father saying that he's going to set his king on his holy hill. Then you have the son who quotes the father's commission or charge to himself. And then you go back to the narrator, the spirit, who advises the kings of the earth, don't rebel, kiss the son, who is the only one you can kiss because he's the only one with skin on, kiss the son lest he be angry and so forth. But you see how if you're not paying attention, you can read through this and you can become confused. So as we go back now to Isaiah, I am suggesting to you that that same confusion is entirely possible here. And you add to that the fact that this is prophecy that is still unfulfilled in our time, the opportunity for confusion abounds. So now come back to Isaiah 49, and I think we made it all the way through verse 6. Now, say a couple of things about this. Let's assume for a moment that the Christian theology is correct, and this is the Messiah we're talking. And by the way, I don't have any problem with that. I'm simply explaining, depending on whose commentary you read, you'll get different views on who this is. Let me say one other thing. The views that are different are held by people who are intelligent and who care about this. They are not held by people who are being trolls and trolling religious people. These are people who sincerely believe which way they believe, and they believe it steadfastly, and they've got good reasons why they believe it. They're not stupid people. What I have found is what you have to do is you have to decide what you believe because the text will not convince you if you believe one way to believe the other. So if you were to go to an anti-Messianic rabbi, he would sit down and with intelligence and fervor would say to you, this is Israel. It's got to be Israel. That's the only thing it can be. I've, you know, I've raised in this language. I've spoken this language since I was a kid. That's clearly Israel. You go to a conservative Christian and he will say, that's clearly the Messiah. The text is ambiguous. So the text is not going to disambiguate that for you. Therefore, you have to decide what you believe. Is the bulk of the Bible speaking of Yeshua, or is the bulk of the Bible speaking of Israel? We read the Bible with what we and I believe is the enlightenment of the events of history starting in 1 BC. I believe those events of history. Therefore, I believe that these passages are talking about the Messiah, Yeshua. If you're a Jew and you see those events of history, this guy was a false Messiah, a failed Messiah. Didn't do what a Messiah is supposed to do. Died. End of story. Didn't work. That can't be the Messiah. Therefore, this stuff can't be talking about him. If you get tied up in this stuff where we are in Isaiah and expect that to prove the issue is the Messiah, it will not be persuasive to someone who doesn't believe the events of the New Testament. As someone who does believe the events of the New Testament, I see Yeshua all over this. Both my view and the other view are held by sincere, intelligent people 
who love the Lord and love the Word, they just don't see it the same way. Very early on in my Christian career, I would run across people, usually on internet discussion groups where I spent a lot of time at that point, who would have these little traps that they would say, you can take these and show your Jewish friends and they won't have an answer for this one. Well, yeah, they will. Little traps that Christians say they will throw out to the Jews to bring them to Yeshua, they don't work. Or at least they don't work as intended. You've got to decide whether you believe the events of the New Testament and that will then color how you see the events of the Tanakh. So we're now all the way down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Who's speaking now? The voice is the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. Notice, and his Holy One. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. In that one verse, you have every problem that I have just spent 15 minutes talking about. Do you all see it? Let's go through it. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. Now, and his Holy One could mean that the Lord is the Redeemer of his Holy One. Or it could mean, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. Two people speaking. And the point I'm making is, it is ambiguous. Not that it's not true, it's just ambiguous. So thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Now, abhorred by the nation is, in my translation, singular. So that could be talking about Yeshua, who was abhorred by Judah and was crucified. You see how this works? So, the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And you is either the Messiah or Israel. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoner, come out. To those who are in darkness appear, they shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. So this can either be the Messiah bringing people back, or it can be Israel coming back. Verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Well, who's he? The Messiah? Or it could be in the same vein as the pillar of fire and the cloud that went before the nation. Again, I'm not trying to confuse. They're doing a good job, I'm sure, but it's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show you what's going on here as best I can and explain to you why it's ambiguous. Verse 11, And I will make all my mountains a road, 
and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. All right, notice, I will make whose mountains? All my mountains and all my highways. And again, that speaks to me of either God or the Messiah. Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forsaken me. Okay, stop there for a minute. We're going to change voices again. Now we're going to have Zion, which is the mountain on which Jerusalem is situated. And Zion is going to be spoken of in a personal way, as if Zion was a person, as if Jerusalem were a person. And that should take you to Revelation. And I'm not going to go there, but that's where it should take you. Because one of the things we see at the end of Revelation is the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven adorned like a bride. And the question always is then, who is the bride of Messiah? And if you read Revelation, it reads very much like the new Jerusalem is the bride. And so Zion here will be personified in the same way that the new Jerusalem is going to be personified in Revelation. 14 again now. But Zion said, the Lord, Jehovah, has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So notice we have a voice change now. Zion is saying, I am forsaken. Jehovah, or the Messiah, is answering that lament. So Zion is lamenting that she has been forsaken by God. Now, God, or the Messiah, speaks in verse 15 and answers, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So the woman with a nursing child or the woman with a son might forget, but God will not forget. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They all come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. And what we're going to see is the things that are bound upon her as a bride binds ornaments upon herself are the returning Israelites. This should remind you more and more of the New Jerusalem at the end of Revelation. The language is very similar, and the metaphor is very similar. And by the way, this is all Jehovah, or the Messiah, speaking. So all the way down to verse 19. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. So what he's saying is, what we're going to do now is we are going to bring into being the original promise made to Abraham. What was the promise made to Abraham? Land and children. 
So what's happening is the interlopers are driven out of the land and the children of Israel are coming back. And they are coming back to such a degree that the land that they are coming back to is going to be too small. And that should take you to Ezekiel, where the borders of the nation go from the brook of Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River. I think that's Ezekiel. Could be Jeremiah, but I think it's Ezekiel. Yeah, I know it is, because it's the vision of the third temple. And Jerusalem itself is miles on the side kind of thing. And one other thing that I will throw out there, just as an oh, by the way, this congregation is what we call a two-house congregation. And two-house congregations believe that Ephraim is also going to come back, not just Judah. And Judah, of course, has been the part of Israel that has been visible for the last 2,000 years as the Jews. And that's mostly Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. Well, you still have, in that case, 10 other tribes that are out there and have been lost. The prophets say over and over again that Ephraim is coming back. And in fact, I was reading in First Chronicles where it explicitly says that Reuben's status as firstborn was canceled and that the blessing of the firstborn goes to Joseph. That's explicitly stated. I mean, we've said that before. For example, when Jacob adopts Manasseh and Ephraim as his own son, he elevates them to the same level as his own sons, which effectively means that Joseph gets a double portion. Instead of dividing the remainder into 11 parts, because Levi doesn't get an inheritance, each getting one, it's divided into 12 parts, and Joseph gets two of those 12 parts. So the idea then is, if you believe Ephraim is not coming back, the firstborn of Israel is lost, gone. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So when we come back here in Isaiah, and everybody's coming back, and the area is too small for them, what I am suggesting that might mean, might mean, is that includes Ephraim, who has been scattered out there breeding like bunnies, and they're coming back and they think that they're Catholics and Lutherans and Episcopalians and Baptists and all sorts of people. They've forgotten who they are, because remember, Manasseh means that God has made me forget my father's house. So Joseph forgets his father's house, doesn't know who he is, but when God reaches out or the Messiah reaches out and starts bringing people in, you're going to have a whole bunch of people that think they're Gentiles that are not. And so the land is going to be too small. Let's pick it up at 19. Surely your waste in your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallow you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. And from where have these come? And if you are of a two-house persuasion, that would make sense. In other words, whoa, who are all those folks? Well, all those folks are Israel, the northern kingdom, who 
got scattered. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am Jehovah. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So people are going to be coming from all over, coming back to the land, because God and the Messiah have brought them back. 24. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Okay, now that should say to you, greater exodus. Everybody know what the greater exodus is? Anybody not know what the greater exodus is? There's a passage in Jeremiah. What it says is, The time is coming when the Lord will bring back his people and the number of people who come back will be so great that the original exodus will be forgotten. And when you say exodus, this is what they will talk about. So the example that I would use is the bombing of the World Trade Center. 9-11 was the second bombing of the World Trade Center. The first bombing is when somebody drove a van full of explosives into the parking garage underneath, and that was the original bombing. Nobody remembers that, because 911, the destruction of the Twin Towers, was such a great and traumatic event that when you say the bombing of the Twin Towers, everybody thinks of that. So what the Jeremiah passage is saying is this exodus that is to come is going to be so great that nobody's going to remember the first one. It's what's called the greater exodus. And, oh, by the way, we say exodus precisely because notice that the Lord will reach in and will take the captives from the tyrants. In other words, Egypt is not going to give these people up willingly. Egypt is going to be forced to give this people up, just like Pharaoh was forced to give the Israelites up in the original Exodus. That's what's going on starting in verse 24. So, 24. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? In parentheses, for tyrants you could put Pharaoh. For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine, that all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, Jehovah, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. In all of this, starting back in verse 18, is talking about what I believe is the greater exodus for the second exodus. The greater exodus is in Jeremiah 16, starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. 
and afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill out of the clefts of the rocks. Notice fishers go first, and then hunters go second. It is my understanding that fishers are good, because Yeshua says, I will make you fishers of men. Hunters are not good, because I will root you out of the rocks where you have hidden. So fishers are people who will bring in those who are willing, if you will. Hunters are going to go out and get the ones who are not willing. And so it is better to be caught as a fish than it is to be hunted as a wayward sheep. Return will be so great that when people say, as the Lord lives, they won't say, as the Lord lives, who got us out of Egypt, because that will not be anything by comparison with what the next one is going to be.